Hello, welcome to all our listeners on behalf of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Anjit Gupta, and I'm excited to be speaking to Omri Dhan, Chief Revenue Officer at Marketa. Founded in 2010 by Jason Gardner, Marketa has created a global standard for modern card issuing, providing the most advanced infrastructure and tools to build highly configurable payment cards. With its open API, Marketa provides companies like DoorDash and Instacart a simplified way of managing payment programs so that they can build and deliver world-class experiences and power new modes of commerce. Prior to joining Marketa's early team, Omri worked as a partner at a management consulting firm. An MBA from Harvard Business School, Omri is a frequent speaker at global conferences and is a featured guest lecturer at the Columbia Business School. Thank you for joining us today, Omri. Thanks, Anshay. Happy to be here. Perfect. So, Omri, could you please begin by telling us what Marketa does and its position within the payments value chain? Sure. Put simply, Marketa helps companies issue cards and process payments. If you think about the cards that you have in your wallet and when you go buy something in a store, you're going to get that card or swipe it in a in a machine for that merchant. The merchant then passes that transaction onto their merchant processor. You may know some folks like Square or Stripe or Braintree or there's a dozen more that that do that. The processor then moves that payment information and that packet if you will over to a network. That network could be Visa or MasterCard or Discover. There are dozens of networks around the world. We think about them kind of primary three or four networks in the United States. The network then routes that transaction to the issuer, the issuer that issued your card in the first place. If you've got a Bank of America debit card in your wallet or a Chase Sapphire preferred card, and that issuer has a processor on their side as well that checks if you have enough money in your account to make the payment. That processor on the issuer side is called an issuer processor, and that's really what Marketa is. Uh, we rebuilt the issuer processor uh, stack, if you will, from scratch, starting about nine or ten years ago. We've seen a lot of innovation on the merchant side. Some of the names I mentioned earlier are probably pretty familiar names in the payments ecosystem, but no one had really done anything on the issuing side uh, until we came around. And so that's what we do, and I trust we'll get into some examples as we as we continue the conversation today. Understood. Thank you for explaining the payments value chain, uh, Omri. That would be really useful to multiple of our listeners who might not be that experienced with the industry. So, uh, Omri, what have been some key moments of truth in your own personal journey and that of Marketa? Uh, how have they shaped the trajectory of the company and the personal trajectory of how you reached Marketa? Sure, sure. I'll tell you a couple stories here, but the uh, the history so. Back in 2011, when we were first getting started, we had to put together a kind of mosaic of suppliers to issue even one card. You need a, a plastics printer. You need a relationship with one of the networks I mentioned before. In that case, we, we had Discover that had joined our team. And you need an issuing bank. And we had an issuing bank that we had found. And we worked for months and months tying these suppliers together in order to issue our first card, we had decided to start in the consumer space where consumers could put value 
on a load value on a card that would be dedicated to certain merchants, almost like a Starbucks card, but for everywhere else you shop. And after all this time and months and months of work and millions of dollars raised and spent, I remember the first day we launched back in 2011, uh, the silence was deafening. I was expecting the world to kind of beat a path to our door. And I walked in the next morning and we'd made a grand total of $4 of revenue. And that was a sobering moment. We, a few months later, had gotten a call from Facebook. And Facebook had heard about our technology, and they wanted to use the technology for a product they wanted to put and put their brand on it. We didn't have any APIs at the time, so we built some, and we were about 19 people. And together, we built what became the Facebook gift card that launched in 2013. And I remember coming in the next day after that launched, and we'd made several thousand dollars of revenue. And it was at that moment that it was pretty obvious that we needed to evolve the business from a consumer business to an enterprise business. Mm -hmm. So that's maybe the first moment of truth. A couple others that come to mind, probably worth sharing for some of your listeners who might be thinking about starting a business or started a business before. Fast forward to March of 2015, we had made some progress and built off the success of the Facebook card, but we weren't making enough progress and we weren't making it fast enough. We were running out of money and there was not a lot of end in sight. I remember sitting in a, in a board meeting in March of 2015 and one of the board members used the two words no entrepreneur ever wants to hear. He said, you know, maybe it's time to start thinking about winding down. And nobody wants to hear winding down ever. And I think Jason's and my survival instincts really kicked in. And we kind of scoured the earth for uh, additional investors. And I remember, you know, he called me. He'd found someone who was going to put in a few hundred grand. And we went back to some of our existing investors. We we changed the business plan to spend less money and, and eventually found our way out of it. But it wasn't until we were staring at something pretty bleak that uh, you know, we had to get as creative as we got. So uh, that was kind of the low moment of the business. And then uh, maybe the third one I'll share uh, to your question on ship was we had been raising around back in March of 2019. So just about a year ago. And uh, it was a big round. It was going to be a higher, much higher valuation than our previous in fact. The valuation was going to be near $2 billion. And we had finished the round or finished most of it, and somehow it had leaked to the press. We got a, a, a phone call or an email from one of the popular tech publications saying, uh, we heard this. We don't hear back from you within an hour. We're going for it. And uh, we called them, but by the, time, by the time we got on the phone with them, they had decided to push it out. So out of nowhere... I'm walking around the halls of Marquetta and people are coming up to me saying, is it true? Is it true? Uh, and they were saying that with a lot of pride in their eyes and just the kind of the idea that we were able to deliver, Jason and I were able to deliver for our team and getting that round done, but also that they felt a, an enormous amount of pride in building and having built that business to where it was, that, that it would be worth that much and that it would be, it would be newsworthy. Uh, it was just an extraordinary feeling, especially in light of uh, the journey that we had been on. So those are some of the moments of truth that come to mind for me. I'm sure there are plenty more, but those are the ones that uh, that are top of mind. Those are great stories, Omri. I'm sure 
they they play a crucial role in defining the entire company culture and those are moments you will look back on and remember fondly now <laughs> in hindsight so yeah totally totally so uh only what originally motivated the founders to start marketa why did they feel that the payments world needed to support a business like this yes so my business partner our founder CEO Jason Gardner who you mentioned before I met him back in 2010 and he was just getting started and and he had founded a business and sold it on the acquirer side on the merchant side so people who kind of help merchants accept payments as I was mentioning earlier and he was very intrigued by what was going on on the issuer side which in those days was was not much and if you recall there was groupon and living social and uh, all sorts of gift card products that were out there and loyalty products and everybody was trying to add technology to those products. Mm-hmm. Starbucks is probably the the one that did it best. And mm-hmm. so he started experimenting with this idea of uh a card that could do a lot more than our traditional debit and credit cards can do. Uh I joined the team pretty early on as you mentioned. Uh we started thinking about what kind of merchants would want this, what kind of consumers would want this, and where would the where would the infrastructure come from? And and around that time <clears throat> something else was going on and we didn't even realize it at the point and time that we were but it was happening underneath which was kind of what I'll call the rise of user experience as the basis for competition. And now we see it everywhere, you know where we shop is different, how we connect with each other is different, and naturally where we bank and how we pay is different. And it's really being driven by a kind of new infrastructure right the, the better user experience is possible uh without all that infrastructure to think about even Instagram Facebook and some of the other apps that we use wouldn't have been possible without mobile without cloud without high speed wifi that type of thing and so that that's all been driven by new infrastructure but more than anything else it's been driven by the growing role of software and software developers and mm-hmm. in order for those developers to deliver better user experiences with and win over more consumers for their app those developers need modern infrastructure and they need APIs they need modern software languages modern database modern network networking infrastructure and if you think about the issuing side of banking traditionally mm-hmm. there's really not been any of that it's all been pretty old so when an Instacart or a Square wanted to build a better user experience for payments before Marketa they'd have to call up a bank or one of the old legacy processing platforms all of them were on kind of legacy systems with cobol and other old software programming languages and really legacy cultures and so there wasn't any real dna fit there between those old cultures and some of the newer app developers usually on the coast but kind of all over the country and it was a painful experience and so marketa set out to solve for that specific pain bringing a modern approach to building payment applications with modern infrastructure and it sounds kind of obvious now but but back then you know we had to kind of experiment to to see that uh, i remember uh, several of the early customers i'm thinking about people like instacart doordash affirm cabbage they were all trying to solve a problem and there was really no one else that could solve it for them and so that became the beginnings of our product roadmap which was to say how do we solve this problem for for Instacart for example uh, in that example they've got tens of thousands of shoppers 
out and about on any given day buying food for people. And mm-hmm. before Marketa, they would use a traditional prepaid card that at most could be auto automatically reloaded once the balance of that card reached a certain threshold, call it 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. And there was really no controls on those cards. So if I'm a 1099 worker and I have three or four orders to fulfill for Instacart in an afternoon, what's to stop me from getting lunch for myself or mm-hmm. you know, paying a little extra for parking or basically using that card for some other purpose other than the purpose that it was intended for? And so uh, Instacart came to us with that problem. DoorDash, by the way, and several others in the on-demand delivery space came to us with that problem. And the way we solved it was basically by building a new way to process transactions that was fully consistent with how Visa and MasterCard process transactions. And we allowed Instacart to see the transactions in real time. No one had ever done that before. We call it just-in-time funding. And they were able to take that transaction uh, straight from, say, a Safeway or a Costco or any big stores, a Whole Foods, let's say, and say, oh, okay, here's a transaction coming in. It's Omri, and he's shopping this store, and he's got this much in his cart. Does that make sense? Is Omri even supposed to be on shift right now? Does his mobile phone tell us that he's in that store also with the geolocation app? Uh, capabilities there. So they could cross-reference a bunch of data that they had with the data from the transaction. And all of a sudden, fraud went basically down to zero. And so I think uh, it's those types of problems that Marketa uh, was built to solve and, and continues to solve. Wow, that's so interesting because from a normal consumer's perspective, you would never even imagine these kind of issues that are coming up because of the entire digital revolution and the coming up of these new modes of commerce, as we call them. So, yeah, I mean, uh, if you're an Instacart shopper, it's, it's kind of magic, right? It just kind of works. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of work underneath to make sure that that magic continues. Absolutely. Now that I think of it, I yeah, that's it's really amazing. So, Andre, uh, you already spoke about a bit about how you offer modern infrastructure and focus on the user experience. But I would love to hear more about what sets market apart as an organization and what has allowed it to capture uh, the market and the moment in the way it has. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think I'll, I'll say this. I, I've always said that Marketa is a startup run by adults. This is, this is my fifth company. This is Jason's third company and second payments company. And I think we always valued the importance of human relationships as much as we value the technology. And so even in the early days, when we'd get a customer, we didn't take that customer for granted. We spent a lot of time with that customer. We spent time investing in the relationship, understanding what that customer's needs were, what the product needs were, where the roadmap was going. And we always talk about the business basically being comprised of three core offerings. One is the platform, two is the product, and three is the partnership. And so... I think that's made a huge difference along the way there. I talked about magic before. And I think there's, there's this expression that some of our customers use called the Marketa magic, which is <laughs> this idea that we can bring a human component to what is largely a very technological backend infrastructure, not terribly sexy product. 
and turn it into something that actually has a human component that's quite magical. And, and if you think about a developer, when they call us the first time, oftentimes they're in the midst of some problem they're trying to solve, even either some card product that is, that is supporting their core business or that is their core business. And no one else typically is able to solve it for them. And so when we say, yeah, we can figure that out and we'll figure it out together, their eyes light up, they feel a sense of possibility, and that's the beginning of relationship and the partnership. So that's one. I think the other is one of our core values here is is called find a way. Mm-hmm. And I talked earlier about our survival instinct, uh, but there's always been a hunger not just to survive but to thrive, to punch above our weight and, and not be afraid of closing big deals with big customers. In fact, we've even used that to our advantage, right? So some of our greatest product features, as I mentioned earlier, came about from having to solve some pretty big problems for an important customer that had never been solved before. And in each of those instances, I remember, you know, the first office with five people and the next office with 30 people. And and as we've grown subsequent spaces, it always felt a little bit like that scene in Apollo 13, where the, the team in Houston has to jump in a room with only the materials they have on board the ship and, and, and need to find a way to get the astronauts help. So we, we kind of breed, bred that culture of we can solve any problem that any customer puts in, puts in our way, and we always just believe that we could find a way through every problem. And I, and I think payments is deceptively complex. It feels pretty simple on the outside. You know, you're, you swipe a card, it works, you get a receipt, you get your stuff, you go. But underneath it is extraordinarily complex, and it's quite easy to get tripped up in lots of different ways. And so I think as an organization, we pride ourselves in solving those problems and inviting customers to bring us, you know, kind of the biggest, hairiest problems that they've got. Thank you. So taking a step back here, Omri, and looking at broadly the entire payment landscape, you know, everyone seems to be talking about revolutionizing payments. And yet I, as a consumer, I'm still using the same credit or debit card I used 10 years ago. So where is this revolution happening and what is really changing in payments? And in fact, what is staying the same? Yeah, we were to go to any payments conference and yes, there are tons of payments conferences. Probably the the biggest one of them is Money 2020 uh, every year in the fall in Vegas. You just look by, you walk through the aisles of the expo hall, a good 30 to 40% of the, the advertising uh, from the companies talks about how everyone is revolutionary, revolutionizing payments. Uh, it's actually kind of funny to watch because I, I remember being one of those companies that said that five or six years ago, and now kind of everyone's everyone's jumping in and doing it. Here's where I think it's really happening and where it's not. Uh, if you think about what I mentioned earlier about developer creating superior user experiences in payments and banking and commerce, those developers are building better banks. They're building better card products better savings and loan products, better mortgage products, basically the entire value chain that a traditional bank used to provide is, as you know, to quote Mark Andreessen, is being eaten by software. And if you think about the scale of some of these, even these digital banks, you think about a cash app by Square, you think about a Chime or a Venmo. If you think in Europe, you've got folks like N26, right? So they're all building exciting new apps that basically bring a much stronger and more compelling user experience than the banks ever did. And I think slowly and more significantly, 
each day, these newer products are taking share away from the banks. The revolution is that while it seems that we still have similar habits, we're still using plastic cards, we still get reward points, et cetera, the new generation of of depositors and bankers and people who need these services, namely Generation Y and Z, are having actually a totally different induction into the banking and payment system and a totally different experience than I did as a member of Generation X or my parents did as baby boomers. Right, everything's online. Mm-hmm. The newer generation never walked into a branch. They don't know what a teller is. They don't really use a lot of checks. And so, while a good deal of the payments infrastructure is likely to be around for some time, the newer players are using it in totally different ways. And what we're seeing is traditional banks are kind of watching. And I think at first they were skeptical, and then they started getting curious. And I think now they're they're concerned, right? Their their depository base, and certainly the next generation, their depository base is being undermined from beneath them. And if if I have a if I'm 25 years old or even 18 years old, and I'm about to get my first credit card, and I feel a higher affinity to a nameless, faceless app on my phone, mm-hmm. and I have a higher degree of trust for the the people behind that app than I do for a traditional bank, that is a revolution. And I think that is scary for some of the the entrenched players. You know, the question, of course, is can the bigger players innovate faster than the newer players scale? Mm -hmm. And right now what we're seeing is the newer players are scaling very rapidly and the older players are struggling to stay relevant, uh, at least with the newer generation. It's interesting you talk about whether large banks can innovate faster. I myself was in a very large global bank, and I can pretty much assure you that the inertia of the size of these organizations is so large that uh, innovation is way down the timeline uh, because of the kind of keys and the kind of systems that exist. I do hope they do innovate, but my own experience was that there's a lot of inertia and uh, all these Neobanks and firms like Marketa are just too agile to take them over very easily. Like they, they're going to revolutionize much too soon. Yeah, I think it's a, as much. You're right. I think it's as much a cultural problem that they've got as it is a technology problem. You you look at what they used to do even three or four years ago. They would set up an innovation lab, and then put the wrong people in the lab, but you know who kind of came from the existing pop culture into the lab, who moved at that pace. And then when they finally had something to do, some idea that they wanted to bring forth, they kind of had to compete for resources against the main bank or the main corporate. And and that just didn't go well. So we're starting to see a change, but I do think, you know, the hardest part of anything to change is is the cultural infrastructure and uh, it'll take some time. Absolutely. So uh, how is Marketa's business strategy evolving to keep up with these changes in the payment space? It's It's funny here in the Valley, there's a real worship, anything that's new and different, mm-hmm. the so-called uh, shiny object effect. <laughs> and I actually think one of the hardest things is to stick to a strategy that's working, but mm-hmm. maybe a few years old and maybe uh, not so shiny. For us, uh, I remember back in August of 2015, I pulled our head of product and our head of technology into a room and we had a 
recently opened up our API and a lot of customers and solving a lot of problems and doing a lot of work, but it wasn't necessarily uh, terribly efficient. And we were kind of serving anybody that walked in the door and we had to apply some more strategic uh, focus to where we were going to, to win and uh, which markets we were going to go after. And so we did, you know, we did a process, took a few weeks and we kind of landed on these kind of commerce disruptors that I've been talking about throughout our conversation here. And since then, our strategy hasn't really changed much, to be honest. It's been almost you know, four and a half years now. And it's certainly evolved, and I expect it'll continue to evolve to meet the needs of our customers, to anticipate those needs. Uh, but that will be evolution and not revolution. We're, we're going after a huge market. I mean, issuing is a huge market. But the most recent numbers show that there's $45 trillion of carded spend each year globally, and that's growing at a 6% rate on an annualized basis. So we have a long way to go in that market. We're just getting started. In fact, we shared a, a data point recently, which is that in any given month, Marquette is now uh, processing 1% of U.S. and United States carded transactions. And a couple years ago, that felt like a dream. And now it, now it feels small. Now we want to go after 5%, right? And so uh, I suspect we will continue down the same path we've been on. We've got opportunities to move into parts of the payments ecosystem. And there's always a temptation to say, hey, we can figure that out. And there's, there's market share over there, there's market share over there. But we believe we are the best in the world at what we do. And every day we're getting better at it. So we're going to continue to press that advantage. Got it. Uh, so where do you, where do you see market uh, in 10 years? Okay. Look, in 10 years, we much more global. Than we are today. We're in the United States, Canada, all of Europe, and 10 countries in Asia today. But the needs of our customers are truly global. And if you think about the types of customers we have, high growth tech companies, financial services companies, they're, they attempt to be truly global. Ironically, there is not a truly global issuing platform in the world today, not a single one. And so uh, we aim to be the first. Uh, so that a, a Square or a Airbnb or an Alibaba can can come onto our platform uh, wherever they are, and they can they can effectively use us in any country that they want to go to. And so I, I see us being a lot more global than we are today. I see us continuing to be the product innovator and product leader that we are. I see us continuing to be the market leader that we are. And I think my hope is that we'll have more influence in our industry. And, sh- and help shape the decisions of people like Visa and MasterCard and some of the bigger banks and maybe even the regulators. One thing I like to say is payments is, is less of an industry and more of a club. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're trying to actually open the doors of that club to more and more people. And so I hope that in 10 years, we've played a role in that and guiding the community forward and that we're a permanent part of, of the modern payments infrastructure, both here and everywhere else. Hey. Best of luck, Omri, to you and to Marketa on behalf of the entire Wharton FinTech Club. And thank you for all thank the you. great insights. Uh, it was great having you on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Thanks, Ratchet. Really enjoyed the conversation.